Well, Brother Scott, you come on up. We welcome Brother Scott Price to this pulpit and look forward to hearing what God has given him to speak. Brother, God bless you. Appreciate the invitation. It was back in 1987 at a conference. I met Tim for the first time. I was there. Uh, you know how some of the conferences are jam-packed, and it's the first time I've ever been to something like that since I was uh, became a believer. Raised in religion, and uh, broke out of that. You know, I thought I'm going to go get some good good food. You know what I mean? So saw Tim at a distance. He was wearing uh, some jeans and a flannel shirt. He didn't look like the preacher kind. He had all these other preachers in suits and ties, and they were they were ignoring me. I thought, I'm wanting to learn some stuff, you know, I'm wanting to talk to some of these preachers. And Tim came up and says, what's your name, son? And uh, we hit it off right there and started uh, talking. Got to hear him preach over the years, and uh, he's preached for us a few times, and I appreciate him. He read for me uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. I'm going to be concentrating on verses 22 and 23, if you want to look at those, and then we're going to go back and uh, grab some of those verses that Tim looked at earlier for some ammunition for some of the points we're going to make here today. The title of the message is The Unwavering Assurance and Boldness in Christ. And I want to speak words of uh, comfort to you today. I think that's my job to preach the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. It is a words of comfort for those that know it, believe it, and love it. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. You know, today, if you ask anybody, especially somebody that's been around a while, it's a little bit, maybe has some gray in their beard or in their hair, what's the most precious thing to them in this life, the most valuable thing? And it is uh, peace of mind. People are striving to have peace of mind, and they try it through money. We know by listening to movie stars that have made millions and millions, and they're not satisfied. And they get strung out on drugs or they commit suicide. It's just they can't get peace of mind. Nobody can get that by things in this life. And there's nothing worse than having anxiety and insecurity, a lack of peace, lack of assurance in, in really anything. I know back, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I was in pretty decent shape. I weighed 224 and my fat level was way less... And physically, I, I felt good and I had confidence. But now I have to pick clothes that hide certain parts of my body, you know, and when we take those pictures, well, we've got to crop certain things out. There's an insecurity there. And that's just in the way we look. But if we go deeper in the way we, we think about where our destiny is, our assurance of our salvation, we come to find out pretty much that's what matters. It doesn't matter if I weigh 700 pounds. <laughs> I'm not going to feel good, but as long as I have that peace of mind and assurance of, of I'm going to be with Christ, Christ has paid my debt. So believers and unbelievers alike are, are seeking that peace of mind. And again, it cannot be bought with money. But this morning I want us to see that this peace that I'm talking about, peace of mind, has been bought yeah. already with a price, and it's the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, I'm going to equate this idea of peace of mind with, with assurance, and that's the topic today, unwavering assurance and even boldness. Now in religion, I think probably most of us have been through religion in times past. I was raised in what's typically called Armenianism, and Armenian Baptist free will was the idol that I carried with me until God gave me repentance of that. But in religion, we have an assurance that is very, very deceitful. It's because man by nature walks by sight and not by faith. We look at what we do, what we can see. 
And we can't walk by faith until and unless God grants that faith by His grace. The just shall live by faith, the Scripture tells us over and over and over again. So we know in our past experience with this, the attempts of trying to gain and maintain assurance, it's empty, it's, it's fake, it's a fake confidence, and it's based on everything inside of us. Self-pride, self-reliance, self-righteousness. I think we've all been there. That's just basically humanism is all that is. And the scripture tells us that that is, it's sinking sand. There's no foundation there. And what fuels this? Most of all, I believe what fuels this is ignorance. Ignorance of the truth of the gospel. We're born in this world with this nature that thinks that salvation is based on what we do. And we constantly go about to try to establish a righteousness of our own because we're ignorant of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Ignorance of who the true God is, who the God-man is, and who we are. And I've already spoke to the deception of who we thought we were in the past. You know, we thought we had it. We thought we had it under control. We got this. We'll do this. And we go, again, we go about to just be religious, produce religious activity. And the more that we can stack up, it's a roller coaster. We feel, well, we did pretty good. And then we do something and we feel guilty. Well, we got to do, we got to make up for the bad. You know, it's just a constant, that burden is always there. It will not go away. Because of, as Tim read in the earlier portions of the scripture, that law, that curse is on us and we can't, we can't do anything to reconcile ourselves to God. So it's a struggle. So basically we are ignorant of the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. And by the way, that is, that is the only grace that there is. There is no, under the umbrella of so-called Christianity, we don't walk into the arena of Christianity and we say, well, there's sovereign grace over there, and there's this other stuff over here that's conditional. We'll start there, and then we might get down here. That's not the way it is. There is only one kind of grace. It's not common. It's not anything in between. It is one God, one gospel, one type of grace. And we're going to hopefully see that as we go through here. Now, verse 22 We'll look at that again and just look at a few of these phrases and words in here as we go through, and I'll just bring out a few points. It's probably nothing different than what Tim has said over the years, but um, it's good to be reminded. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The phrase draw near here, uh, you can read over that real quick and just miss that. Draw near means to approach or to visit. So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we approach, visit, or draw near? That's just by faith. Christ says, come to me. What he's saying is draw near. Approach me. Visit me. It would be kind of silly to be going down the road and um, there's a person's house there that says, we're going to, we're driving this, we're going to visit Tim and just keep going. Just acknowledge, there he is. See you later. We're going to stop and we're going to approach him. We're going to knock on the door, shake his hand, hug him or whatever. We're going to visit him. And that is by faith. We can only do that by faith. Now, we're not fatalists. Some which have, some theologians call them hyper-Calvinists, fatalists, those that would say, well, Everything's predestinated and, and there's no motions to follow through. There's no means from point A to point B. Some say, and I've run into these people over the years, that everything's predestinated. Christ died for the elect. And you don't even have to believe. You can be regenerated, go through life, and not even know that you were regenerated. It's fatalism. The scripture over and over again says to approach, draw near. And then there's the, the mystical types where they don't even know what they're doing. They just, they're ignorant of the truth. So they're just lollygagging through life and stumbling around and just anything relative is fine. What's true to you is fine. What's true to me is fine. Two plus two equals five to you. It can equal three to you. 
the smart people know that it's four, but it, it doesn't matter. That's that Alice in Wonderland life. That's usually people are on medication that believe those things. So we come to him and we, we know who he is. And there, there are means involved. If you want to turn there, go to John 17. And then we're going to go to 1 John 5 after that. I want us to see these are, these are two important verses that you hopefully have memorized. And at least have these two verses I'm going to read tied together. So we know who he is and who we're coming to. So what does that, what does that look like? John 17 and verse 3. This is uh, Christ's prayer before his death. Some say it's his high priestly prayer. Verse 3, and this is life eternal. What? What's he talking about? That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. If you don't know God, you don't have eternal life. If you're this fatalist type, says, well, it's predestined, you don't have to know God, you don't have to believe. Here's our proof text right here. Simple. This is this is just one. There's all kinds. But notice here in this verse it says, it makes a distinction. And as I get older, I, I see because of the religious atmosphere we live in, everybody claims they're a Christian. Everybody claims they believe in this person called Jesus Christ. I see more and more the importance of making distinctions. Tim visited a place where I worked years ago. I can't even remember how long ago that was, but it was a manufacturing company, that, and um, I gave Tim a tour. But that same place where I worked, uh, I worked before for 23 years. Behind the the shear and the the plasma burn table where they cut out metal, I saw this big piece of scrap metal, and it had a burnout of a of a big wrench. It was about three foot long. And I saw that, and right away I had thought, I, I, I need to have that. So I asked him later to make a smaller version, about the size of an 8.5 by 11. And I used that to talk to many of my friends and to people at church. I actually made another replica of that and gave it to a, to a preacher in Pennsylvania. Long story short, I asked a friend of mine I worked with real close, I said, what is this? He said, that's a wrench. I said... No, it's what the wrench is not. That cutout is where the wrench was, and everything around it is what the wrench was not. But you could see where the wrench was. It was distinct. It was clear. God's people should know both, I believe. It's safe to know both. It's safe to know Christ, and it's probably a, a no-brainer that you're going to know who the false Christ is because you probably just left him, you know. I was raised in, again, false religion, and I knew who I trusted in before, and it was not worth trusting. So here it makes the distinction in this verse, the only true God. So it makes that distinction, it's butted up against false gods. He makes that distinction in Isaiah, if I remember correctly. Talks about idols. Talks about you got to pick them up, got to move them, got to set them up. He says you pray to a God who cannot save. So he went, went ahead out of his way to mention you're praying to this God, gave more commentary on it. He can't save. He didn't just say, I'm the true God and, and that's it. Other, uh, think of another Isaiah verse uh, I'm God and there's none else. He didn't just say, I'm God, period. And there's none else, he said. So those distinctions come out. And of course, now we're in the 21st century and we know all the false religions and false gods and false gospels. Distinctions seemingly are more and more important as we go along. Uh, we, people need to know what we're saying and what we're not saying. I told our congregation, especially when we've had visitors, I would hate, uh, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. If somebody walked out the door after the message and said, what, what did he say exactly? <laughs> that kind of a message is, first of all, it's not offensive. If you don't know what's being said, you can't be offended at the truth. But you want to get down to the distinctions of the truth. Go to 1 John 5. Some more language here about knowledge, understanding, and the distinction in reference to God being the only true God. 
1 John 5.20. It goes with the verse that we had just read. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. That's an important statement there. Now, when we talk to people, you might be used to this by now, I'm not sure. But we talk to people and we we don't talk over their heads. That's not our goal. We don't use fancy terms for talking to the common person. We don't get too theological on them in reference to like systematic theological terms. There are some that know those things and you can talk that language to them, but when you're talking to the common person, you just give the, the essence of the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace, how it's unconditional, it's all conditioned on Christ and He did all the work and so on and so forth and who God is, His character. And when we push that with boldness, uh, I don't know if you all have ever heard this accusation, but they always come back with, you're saying we've got to you know, be a theologian to be saved. And we're talking about some very, very simple things. Really, really simple. It's not that they're hard to understand. It's they don't like them. Yeah. And when we press that it's just one thing, if you just want to look at it mathematically, it's just, we keep bringing it back to one thing. And they say, you're making it confusing. How can it be confusing? Let's look at your system. How many things? You can't even count their things, all their conditions that they lay on you, and all these other things. It's simplistic. The simplicity that is in Christ. The singleness as compared to being double-minded. You know, if you, if you get change from somebody, if somebody smacks down one green dollar bill, readily identifiable, one dollar. But if somebody gives you a big old handful of 35 pennies, some nickel. I mean, you gotta, and you you might have to spread it. Out. You might have to count two or three times. We're just talking about one thing: yeah. Christ alone. Very very simple. So we've been caused to believe this gospel. We've been made willing. We've been given understanding that we may know Him. And notice this: that we may know Him. That is true. There, there's the statement another time, and we are in Him. That is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. So there's no optional gods. There's no, you've seen those bumper stickers, uh, says something about coexist. And you have all these different symbols that spell the word coexist. And there are all these different religions. It's not going to work. There's just one. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Just one. So we come to rest in him. We rest in Him from our labors for our salvation. We see our completeness in His merit alone for perfect righteousness. Look at Hebrews 4. I'm going to look at some very similar language here in Hebrews 4. And after that, I think we'll spend most of the time back in our text. But Hebrews 4 verse 16 uses some similar language here that is in Hebrews 10. The fourth word in this verse here is, is what I want us to kind of look at just for a second. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come. This is the same original word as the, the other word approach or draw near in our other text. We come to Christ. It's not just you see Him and you don't have any kind of relationship. You come. You approach. You go to Him. And that's coming to him by faith. That's the only way you can approach him is by faith. You don't, you don't walk down here and do this thing. Well, I did that when I was a kid. Walk down and uh, say the prayer. That's not coming to Christ. I was deceived in that business for like 10 years. Let us therefore come, how? Boldly. There's another boldly language in our, in our text in 10. We're going to go back to it in a minute. Boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, when when is that? When do we need help? All the time. <laughs> All the time. So the question is, can we ever stand on our own apart from Christ? Ever? No. Never. I've told people at our place that when you are dealing with 
in your relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be with just thinking or worshiping, praying, or whatever, it's not like you clock in and out like on a job. You're in, and you stay in. And it's not like, you know, you just, okay, we're in church now, so we got to do certain things a certain way. No. When you believe the gospel, you've clocked in, and you're not clocking out. You're in this thing for life. So we, we are to worship outside of this building. We're to worship at home, at work, uh, wherever we go. And we are to be with Him and approach Him and commune with Him all the time. So there is, there is never a time when we do not need Him. Now, back in the chapter 10, let's go back there. I think we'll probably spend the rest of our time there. The, in uh, chapter 10 and verse 22, I'm going to finish out that phrase there. It talks about a true heart, with a true heart, draw near with a true heart. Now, this has to do with, uh, this is nothing really mystical, <laughs> nothing confusing. It's talking about the mind or the thoughts. I believe the heart is the, the mind, the will, and the affections. But I think primarily the mind, I think that's what, um, what drives what the heart is. We, we should not let our emotions drive our thoughts or our feelings drive our thoughts. There, there, are, there are religions that are based purely on emotions, a static, you know, it's pep rallies. You go in and um, right away, and I like music. I like some pretty crazy music stuff I like. But Tim, I talked to some of the stuff he likes, some of the, you know, rock and roll in the 60s and 70s. I, I like that stuff. But if you go into a, uh, any of these big mega churches, you go in and that beat that I, that I have a tendency to like, I know how to play the drums too. I don't play it in my church. But I've got that, I know how to play the drums, so I've, I'm into that beat, you know, and I walk into a place that's like, oh yeah, this is it, man. This is, it drives the emotions and the feelings, and that can drive your thinking, which is kind of dangerous. Because it, it lets your guard down in what you think, and you just start like open up and just take it all in. You see everybody else all ecstatic, and, and you have some kind of union and communion with him, and that's not good. Because a lot of these churches, the, they've got the music, but then they get up and they lie on God. So we are to approach him with a true heart, with our, with our mind having not, not just sincerity, but one that, is, that has been humbled. One that is not full of hypocrisy. One that is approaching for the right reason. And um, by the way, that should rub off on how we deal with one another in the church. We should not come in these doors with a false face on. Uh, we should be real in here, just as real as we are out at home or at work or wherever we're at. Transparent. We should be, I think God's people should be transparent. That doesn't mean we go around offending everybody. Uh, I'm not talking about the gospel, but just saying, hey, uh, I don't like your hair today. That's what I'm thinking. I'm going to tell you. That's not, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about following that, that rule that God says, treat others like you want to be treated. Just be real. Be honest. Be sincere in the truth as you interact with one another. And drawing near with a true heart, I would hope by now that we, we know what the fake heart is. We can identify the fake heart. And we're done with that. That stuff crops up every now and then. You know, Paul and Peter and James and John, they, talk, they give warnings about don't let that stuff creep back in because it's there. But come with a true heart, one that is humbled and seeks only the glory of God, not self. And that's not natural, by the way. <laughs> it's not natural to look outside yourself and, and you know, have Christ as being enthroned in your mind and then having others that are around you serving them. That's not natural because we're self-serving by nature. It goes on to say, a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance. And these words are not accidental. It means entire confidence. Entire confidence. That means we can't get around it. It means no doubts. 
We can't get we can't brush that on a carpet and say it's okay to doubt. It's not okay to doubt. It doesn't mean you're lost if you're doubt. I had a guy write, write me from uh, Scotland the other day, and he said um, I was in this group, and um, they taught really strong on assurance of salvation. And I, he said, all I did was ask a question about doubting, and I got kicked out of the group. <laughs> and he was even hesitant to tell me that there have been times since he's been converted that he's doubted. He was hesitant. So he thought I wouldn't write him back. And I knew the group he was talking about, and I was familiar with them in times past, and they're a rough bunch, you know. And usually people that come out of that group are friends of mine. <laughs> I get the leftovers. But what is it to doubt? What is doubt? It's going in the direction of unbelief. And unbelief is sin. And we ought not encourage unbelief. The Scripture doesn't. Scripture talks against it. Now, some might say, well, I, I don't doubt Christ. I doubt myself. Who told you to trust in yourself? Nowhere in Scripture it says to trust in yourself. Lean not on the arm of the flesh. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Don't look inside. There's nothing good there. Nothing good there. It is death. Tim had read early on in our chapter about the, the old covenant and the contrast, how that Christ rolled out the new covenant by his blood, and so on. But that old covenant was called, it was the administration of death. Yeah. It was a ministry of condemnation. So there's nothing good there. And some might say, well, Scott, we're, we're, we're in New Covenant. We're talking about, we still want to honor the law, so we're going to give you like a lower set of laws. And you've got to keep them. Sabbath day, I mean, you can, we can debate about that. You know, you can take that or leave it. But you've got to keep the nine, right? You've heard it before. And as you keep the nine, uh, you should be getting better at it. And you look to that as your confidence and assurance that you're saved, they say. Have fun with that. It's not going to last long. You're going to be lying to yourself. You're going to be deceived and you're going to be thinking you're doing a good job. And what you're doing is you're lowering the standard of God and you're raising the standard of man in reference to what the Scripture says man is and what man isn't. You're lying about those things we talked about earlier. Who God is, who the God man and who, and who you are. You're perverting the gospel. So these things, they're really simple, really. They're not, they're not hard. That's not rocket science, as they say. In full assurance of faith, of faith, touch on that again, it, it's, it's persuasion, it's conviction of truth, reliance upon something. Some may even say trusting. But it's, a, it's an agreement. It's, it's saying, amen, I agree. I assent that this is true, and I believe it. And faith, we know, of course, is a gift. And we know a lot of groups that will say that. Faith is a gift. You know, they'll give lip service to that. But they'll turn it into an offer. And then it turns into being conditional. Like they say, you know, here's faith, do you want it? I mean, think about that. If you take it, what is that action you're doing that's in between you not having it and you having it? It's some kind of in-between action of some kind of faith or will. It doesn't make sense. Faith is not an offer. When God gives faith, He works it in His people. He works it in the elect. In their thoughts and in their mind, He directs faith to Christ crucified, the finished work of Christ. And he doesn't give his sheep, his people, a false faith to believe in a false gospel. That's not how it is. And then they don't grow out of it into the true gospel. God does not give uh, bum faith. He gives good faith that is in the proper object. This thing, it concerns his glory. So he's not going to be, you know, he's consistent with his character. He's faithful to his character. So he's not going to misdirect faith. Now, back in our 
chapter 10 in verse 19 let's go up there and grab that verse there and I'm going to get to this idea of faith and, and boldness having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus notice again entering boldness to enter that's a coming to or approaching again we're always going toward Christ and that's by faith we saw the idea of boldness a couple times in this chapter and we went to Hebrews 4 and it's very obvious that boldness would relate to assurance I mean if, if you take assurance out of the mix and have boldness that's just craziness that's uh, almost an attack <laughs> you would think but boldness is tied or related to assurance so the question is how do we get to that point in our thoughts in our lives to have assurance and boldness how do you get there some would say kind of alluded this a second ago some would say if, if you sing less and less and you progress more and more in holiness without which none shall see the Lord by the way so get to it because if you're not doing that you're not going to see the Lord then you can have boldness and assurance this is what people say in religion this is what people say in religion that sometimes use the same phrases and terms that we use like sovereign grace predestination, election effectual atonement some of these same people will promote these ideas they'll call it personal holiness progressive sanctification imparted righteousness lordship salvation that's a misnomer there that's what's going on today that's popular lordship salvation it's just redirecting people back under the law making Christ your Lord and if you don't do this if you don't sin less and progress and get holier then they say that's evidence that you're not saved now we know what this leads to one of two things maybe both a false assurance in other words deception or it leads to guilt, doubt and fear a life of guilt, doubt and fear and again that's lack of assurance that's where we don't want to be and it sounds like to me is uh, like that guy that says uh, God I thank you that I'm not like other men like this guy over here or it reminds me of the guy who said, But Lord, Lord, haven't I done many wonderful works in your name? That's what that leads to. So I believe there's a simple little reminder that might help if you can get this little formula down in your mind. This is one of those things, if you don't get anything, get this. Wherever your assurance is, that right there is the object of your faith. Wherever you place your assurance, that's where your hope is. That's what you're trusting in. So if it is in sinning less and getting more holy, it, that's right there where it is. It's right inside. Which is, it's not good. That's unbelief. It's unbelief from the get-go. Go back up to verse 9. Kind of want to get how we get this mindset. How do we have boldness and assurance? Look at some of these verses up here that's already been read. It's going to be quite obvious. Verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. By the which will, notice right here, we are sanctified through what? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all time is what that means. I think for all is in italics. It's just saying he only needed to die once. It's comparing the old covenant sacrifices that were multiplicity of sacrifices. They never stopped. They had to keep going. Well, here it says he only needed to do it once. He did it perfect, and he's done. It's finished. Once and for all time. So this here shows how that we're, we're sanctified, how that we're set apart, consecrated, made holy by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, not by what you do. That's easy, isn't it? But people have written like two-inch thick books on what you do to get to this place. Look at verse 14. 
For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, it's, it's either you believe this or you don't. Right? This is where you can rest. These things are done for you and to you by what he has done on the cross. And you, you weren't even born. You were set aside before the foundation of the world. There's an there's a aspect of uh, sanctification, actually, in election, where you're set apart. God sets his affection on you. He chooses you out from among the rest. And Christ comes and does what we read here. He sanctifies you by his blood, by this offering, by the way, that which was accepted by the Father. And then the Spirit comes and separates you by giving you life. And you're sanctified. The threefold aspect of sanctification. And you didn't have any part of any of it. You can't make it grow. You can't change it. It's definite. And effectual. I was reading one of those uh, confessions of faith just last night on sanctification to kind of refresh my mind of the silliness that's out there. And it talks about how that sanctification is not perfect in this life. And I thought, how blasphemous is that to make that statement? That sanctification is that part of salvation? It sure is. To say that it's imperfect, something that God does in salvation is imperfect, is ridiculous. So right there, the offering of the body of Christ is is the point we can get at where our minds can wrap around this idea of assurance and boldness. Law and justice has been answered. It's been satisfied. It's finished. And a perfect righteousness has been brought in and established to be imputed God's people. It's a done deal. It's out of your hands if you're a partaker of it. Here's another encouraging verse in our text, verse 17. I don't know if you've ever noticed in the Scripture, in the Word of God, the way it's expressed to us. There's a lot of redundancy because we're dull of thinking, I think, is part of it. But it's, and we have memory problems. We're to be reminded over and over and over again in different ways from different angles that this is what we have. Verse 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. (laughs) Assurance, right? (laughs) I don't know how much more you can explain that. You can come with boldness if you don't have sin in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. The rest of verse 22 there, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, in times past, we had an evil conscience which was not cleansed. And uh, it always had guilt on it. Uh, We were always producing dead works, which the Scripture says is fruit unto death in our old way of thinking. We would produce dead works, which are works that that are motivated by gaining or maintaining some form of righteousness. It doesn't matter how small. It doesn't matter intellectually how small under the microscope that maybe it's so minuscule you can't see it. It's there. And it contributes to death. That's an evil conscience. Dead works and self-righteousness. So we've been, uh, that's been sprinkled and taken care of now. We have a cleansed conscience. Washed with pure water. And this is not water baptism. We're talking about how that we've been regenerated by the Spirit. The given life so that we can see and approach, approach, come to Him as our only hope and the, the washing of the mind with the Word of God. Uh, I think Tim said one time, uh, I heard him say something about brainwashing. And yeah, that's uh, gladly so. I want to be brainwashed by the Word of God over and over again. I wish it was just like one time deal. You take a pill and you're done, but we forget. We slip away. And we don't know it all, so we have to study and learn. Verse 23, let us hold fast 
the profession of our faith without wavering. Hold fast, just it means to hold down, to keep in memory, to possess, to retain, to, to stay. Hold fast the profession of our faith. That's what we are to hold fast to, the profession of our faith, the acknowledgement of, of this truth. Uh, it's related to con- confession, which means to say the same word about. Uh, we agree with God about these things. We agree with God about who he is and what he demands. We agree with God and say the same thing about who we are, how that we're an ungodly sinner and we don't have anything to bring. We agree with God and confess and acknowledge that and say the same thing with God about who this Christ is, how that He is the only way of acceptance. He's our propitiation. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification, our reconciliation. He's everything. We're complete in Him. So we agree, we confess, we say amen with the same thing that God says in His Word about this this record that pertains to this life in Christ and salvation. And we're to do it as the, as the verse says here, without wavering. No leaning from side to side, no staggering. In other words, no doubting. Straight shot, belief, faith, truth. The wavering has to do with us. Looking from side to side. And you remember when uh, Peter was sinking, right? He saw the waves and stuff. and He saw the waves. You know, he wasn't looking to Christ. So we, we see the, the waves in, inside of us. And we look inside and we sink. And we should. <laughs> because there's nothing saving within. If we look to Christ, then that's what our, our whole context is talking about. The boldness that's there in Him. Now, all this is coming. All this, all this language here, this teaching is coming. And I've got two verses I'll read. You don't have to turn there. Titus 1, 2. It's coming from the God that cannot lie. Is, is he worth trusting? Can he be trusted? Yeah. Titus 1, 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. And he had to add another word. Promised before the world began. Promised it before the world began so you can get your hands on it. Couldn't get your hands on it if he promised it in time anyway. But this is the God, and it makes a distinction. This God, the one that can't lie. He can't. There's some things God can't do. Here's one, can't lie. Yeah, I've heard uh, some fatalists say, well, God can do anything. They said if he, if he wanted to not be holy, he could, be, he could not be holy. <laughs> no. no. He's faithful to his character. He can't lie. He won't lie. It's not that he won't. He can't. The Lord Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, he couldn't sin. He couldn't sin. Of course, we know he didn't want to, but he couldn't because of who he was. It was impeccable. So here's the guy, I'm just telling you who this is that's talking to us. It's the one that can't lie, who has promised. 2 Corinthians 1.20, sort of the same language here, and, and then maybe our reaction to it. Uh, Brother Jason Booth preached this in our conference about three weeks ago, this verse. For all the what promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen. So, God dishes out these promises. He speaks the truth that God cannot lie. And He talks about and points the way. Here's where, here's where you look. Right here. Approach me through Christ. I'm not lying about this, He's saying. You can count on it. And you, you know, you look through it and you see what you came out of and you've been given life to see all these things and understand and you're saying, yep, that's it. Amen. I can't, I can't go any, I can't veer off. I can't waver off the path of this security and assurance in Christ alone 
and being saved by Him alone. I can't veer off from it. So why without wavering? What does our verse say in verse 23 of chapter 10? How can we do that without wavering? We can notice the last part of the verse. It's in brackets. The word for means because. Because He is faithful. That promised. He's faithful first to Himself. So that He can be faithful to us. He's faithful to His character. So this thing of salvation, if you haven't noticed yet, it's, it's wrapped up in the character of Almighty God. Salvation, first and foremost, is Godward. He has to satisfy Himself. He's not going to lower His standard to save His people. He saves in a just way. He's both a just God and a Savior. In a on down in uh, the verses there. I don't know how long I've been going, but I just want to wrap it up by, and it's not in my notes. I didn't think I'd get this far. I stray from my notes a lot at, at our place, just like crazy. But go down to, you know, start talking about good works and how they exhort one another to do those things. Uh, after, of course, having these things we've been talking about, after having these things straighter in our mind. You can't even take the first step until you have these things straighter in our mind. We are to gather together and exhort one another to love and to good works. Let me catch up here. I've lost my place. Verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and increasingly so. So much the more as you see the day approaching. Now I've heard some pre- uh, people uh, say, make statements. I know, I know Tim had a message one time. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It was the last couple of years. Something about the only, the only righteousness or something. And in there he made a statement. And it was a true statement. It was something about referring to this this verse, maybe not exactly reading it, but referring to it, the idea of church attendance. And he said something like, church attendance has nothing to do with your righteousness. And uh, I could imagine people hearing that. And I, I know a couple people in particular that when they heard that, it was like, yes! Because they have a hard time showing up at church. You know? <laughs> and then with all the celebrating of that truth, which I already teach. The next statement was made. It was something like, why in the world would God's people not want to gather (coughs) around the gospel and worship Christ like this verse says? They were too busy celebrating the fact that it was, they thought it was okay now to skip church. That's not what Tim was saying. It had to do with the righteousness. (coughs) But what is this verse? This is not necessarily a church attendance verse isolated by itself. It's just not, that's not what it's all about. It's tied to the next verse. And don't get me wrong on what I'm getting ready to say until I explain it here. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. The willful sin here that it's talking about is, is unbelief. It's going back into a some substandard activity that doesn't meet up to the one sacrifice of Christ. That's the willful sin. It's unbelief. It's not church attendance. Of course, I've heard that when I was younger. Um, It's not just any other sin. I think all sin is willful. I don't know why people try to fool themselves. And uh, Well, I do know why. Because they're self-righteous. But... What this is talking about is as we gather, as you all gather, as we gather up there around Cincinnati area, we gather because of of our weakness. We're frail. We need to be reminded and encouraged about all the things that were in our text today. About being assured and being bold 
and unwavering because of the work that Christ has done alone. Because if, if we are not exercised in that, and we get away from that, and we forget, and we don't sharpen our minds with other believers and encourage one another and talk about the gospel, and maybe we get out around other people that are maybe of a different belief. Maybe somebody gets out of church for months and they see this this guy they work with, and he's not so bad. He's saying some of the same things, you know. And then maybe they start getting into some trouble, and then they then they look inside. Where where are you at, man? You're hurting. You need to get in the scripture and be reminded and grow and mature in that idea that you are nothing, and He is everything. Yes. You have to be reminded of that because you'll start to think that you're a little bit of something, and He's not enough. And that's what this is all about. This is why we should gather together. And it's not a competition to see who has perfect attendance. But it has to do with we walk through that door, we take the false face off, and we're in humility. We say, you know, I'm a sinner. My flesh is no better now than it was the first day I was converted. I'm not any more holy. My holiness is in Christ, my righteousness is in Christ. And that's where we're going to just leave it, right there. So I appreciate you all listening. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to talking with some of you during lunch. And I pray for our group up there. We're about 18 miles north of Cincinnati. Um, If everybody shows up, we're a little bit smaller than this crowd. But not everybody always shows up. So we're about half the size right here. But, uh, Anytime you're in the area, feel free to visit. And again, thanks for thanks for having me. Thank you, brother. Thanks. Thank you so much. I'd say amen to that. Every word is good news always. The gospel is always good news. Bless my heart. Thank you so much, brother. Thanks for coming our way and preaching for us.